The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I'm so excited to bring to you our guest today. We have Shell Horowitz, and he has a brand new book out called Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. And he asks us to imagine that our businesses can make a big impact solving problems like hunger, poverty, war, violence, and catastrophic climate change while making a healthy profit. And you might be wondering, how in the world can we do that? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to dig in deep with Shell. And I'm so pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Shell, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you, Jill. I think it's the best thing I've ever written, and it's my 10th book, so that's saying a lot. That is saying a lot, um, and it is terrific. You know, years ago, um, I heard about a term for eco-friendly consumers, and they were called LOHAS buyers, and that LOHAS stood for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. And at that time, and this was, you know, more than a decade ago, they were a relatively small percentage of consumers, but they were willing to pay more for products if they determined that they were in alignment with their values. Talk to us about the status of eco-friendly consumers in 2016. What do we know about them? Well, they are actually, I think, a much larger segment now than they were then. Uh, There's been a huge, huge uh, uptick in the awareness of these issues. Uh, We had how many tens of thousands of people marching in the streets of New York for climate change a year and a half ago. We had how many countries coming together in Paris this winter to actually forge an agreement for the first time uh, that that actually means something. So the, the general ignoring of the issue has really gone away in a lot of ways. I, I've noticed that it's become much, much more mainstream, and I think that's a very good trend. But within the overall green market, there are different sectors. So not everybody is a raving deep green, oh, everything I do is concerned with making the world better. But there are a lot of people who do the right thing, what I call the lazy greens. They'll do the right thing when it's convenient and easy and doesn't cost more and then, of course, the deep greens are the low-cost buyers who will pay a premium and who will go out of their way to get those products. Absolutely. And, you know, that's very important, of course, for business owners of all types to know uh, what's happening and maybe what's shifting in their target market and the way that more and more people, mainstream folks, are getting on board with those uh, low-cost uh, mindsets. Now, you know, yeah, and, and quite frankly, Jill, those businesses who are not getting on the train are missing the train because within the next few years, it's going to become basically unacceptable not to be addressing these issues. I think that's true even for small businesses because even in, you know, communities that are small and people are into buying local, um, they want to see good citizens, good 
corporate citizens um, out of even their small businesses. So I think you're absolutely right. And I know that a lot of our businesses do really require um, a good relationship with the investment community, whether they need small business loans or whether they're larger corporations who need the investment community's backing. And, you know, I'm wondering how the investment community has you know, taken on this Lojas mindset, so to speak, are they lured by socially responsible companies? Absolutely. In fact, every single study I've ever seen, and I've seen quite a number, has shown that socially responsible portfolios at least equal and often outperform the conventional portfolios. And if you think about it, it makes sense. They're not in court fighting pollution lawsuits or labor practices lawsuits. Uh, They're being responsible members of the community. They're therefore attracting better employees, better customers, people who stay with them longer. So, of course, this is going to be a success tool. Right. And I think, you know, that a lot of investment uh, community folks that we've even had on Go Green Radio have talked about, um, you know, these ESG metrics, environment, social, and governance metrics that are along these lines, the socially responsible companies. And they're looking at companies that are serious about reporting on ESG metrics as ones who are going the extra mile in risk assessments, which is something that, of course, the investment community is very concerned with. And um, so I, I think I think that's exactly right. You know, yeah. you're. Although I, I do want to say that being socially responsible is step one, and step two is being socially transformative. And that's Talk really to what us the about new book that. is about. It's about the idea that business can actually be a force for positive social change and environmental change. Well, talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by being socially transformative. What does that mean? Okay, for example, one of my favorite companies in this space is a company called D-Light. That's a small letter D, period, L-I-G-H-T. And what they do is they make solar-powered LED lanterns, and they sell them profitably in various developing countries. Now, here's the thing. They're selling them to people who've generally been using kerosene lamps. Let me tell you about kerosene. It's toxic. It's highly flammable and has caused many deaths and serious injuries. It, quite frankly, produces crappy light, and, of course, you are buying a couple of bucks worth of fossil fuel that you can't necessarily easily afford every month forever. So you turn that around and you replace it with a higher quality light that, okay, there's a time payment. Let's say it takes 10 months to pay it off at $2 a month, but then you stop and that $2 a month goes into your family income. And if that family is only making 20 or $30 a month, that is huge. Then on top of that, you've gotten rid of the fire hazard. You've gotten rid of the toxic fumes. And because the quality of light is better and lasts longer, You can do things that you couldn't do before on the poverty front, such as maybe the parents can come in after a day in the fields and they can start some sort of little cottage industry, some sort of craft item that they can sell and improve themselves economically that way. Meanwhile, their kids can get better grades in school because they can see to do their homework. And so that results 10 years down the road in a higher position in the job market. So this little $20 lamp becomes a ladder out of poverty. I love that it's addressing so many levels at once. That is a great story. And your book has several of those. I have to say, I was really inspired by some of the examples that that you uh, that you write about. Your book has some interesting insights, too, into the effect that socially responsible businesses um, have on their own employees. And I'd love for you to share some of those insights with our listeners. Sure. 
when employees are happy, they're more productive. Uh, they stay longer. They recruit their friends so that filling positions becomes cheaper. And employees who are doing good things for the world and are treated well tend to be happy employees. If you have a higher purpose than just putting this shaped widget into that shaped can all day, uh, if you know that putting that widget into that can is going to make a difference, let's just say, in creating energy systems in some village in Bangladesh, you're going to be more likely to be enthusiastic about that. It, it reminds me of the old story of the, the man who interviewed three different masons working on a construction project. And the first one, what are you doing? I'm building a wall. Um, the second one, what are you doing? I'm laying bricks. Then he gets to the third one. What are you doing? I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. It's that higher perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and whether or not you're a religious me. person, that's, it's just a metaphor there for, for having a higher purpose. It is. And I think that, you know, there's been much ado about, you know, millennials and how to deal with them in the workplace and, you know, oh, they want to find meaning and everybody's kind of you know, talked about that's something new, but, you know, I don't think that's something new. I mean, I've talked to people from a multitude of generations who would love the opportunity to feel like their work, no matter where they fall on the corporate ladder, has meaning and purpose. That's what we all want. And and if you are a part of a company who has that purpose as, you know, part of the forefront of your internal communication, that feels good to everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm a boomer. I'm not a millennial. I'm 59. And I agree with you that this is nothing new. Certainly my generation and people a few years older than me came into the workforce with very, very clear ideas about making a difference. And a lot of us have. People started foundations and they started socially um, transformative companies and on and on and on. And even reaching back, I was a community organizer for the Grey Panthers of Brooklyn when I was in my early 20s. And I had people in the organization who were old labor activists from the 30s. And likewise, they, they wanted more in their lives. And I, I, so I think this is a, a natural human trait. And what's different now is that we're talking about it more. And, of course, we have social media tools to connect more so that we can create alternative systems around work that were not easy to do before. But, yeah, it's nothing new, and it, it won't be the last generation either to be doing this, but I feel like I've always been a purpose-driven person and running a purpose-driven company, but when I got into this higher work of helping the business community figure out how to solve hunger, poverty, war, and catastrophic climate change, I got a lot happier at work, and I've been pretty happy all along. (laughs) That's only really the last few years. Well, and your book, at its core, is about marketing, so I'd like for you to talk to us about the difference between push and pull marketing and what that has to do with this notion of marketing to heal the world. Okay. Push marketing is what most people think of when they think of as marketing. You get some kind of intrusive sales message in front of people and uh, just hit them over the head with it until they either buy or go away. Poll marketing is consumer-driven. We've always had some poll marketing. For example, the Yellow Pages is a poll medium. You say, I want, uh, let's just say, a plumber, and you open up the section on plumbers, and you look at the ads, and you decide who you're going to call. These days, of course, most of that happens on the Internet. Poll marketing would also include going out to your friends and getting referrals for who they liked to work with. And now in our social media-driven world, poll marketing is far more important than push marketing uh, really hasn't worked that well for decades, but it really doesn't work now in the era where we are so inured 
to advertising messages and so tired of them and so able to tune them out, both technically with the, going back to the invention of TiVo, which allowed you to skip the commercials when you were mm-hmm. playing back a video. Uh, but now with, uh, we don't have three channels of TV anymore. We have tens of thousands of channels online. And if somebody annoys us, we're gone. Yep. So you need their permission to market to them. uh, Some of the best ways are pool tools, such as newsletters or e-zines or informative videos, things that position you as the expert, position your product as the solution. But they don't say, buy me, buy me, buy me. They say, okay, if you're going to be looking at plumbing systems, then here are the factors you need to consider, one of which would be this is the impact on the environment. Mm, I see. And so how can companies use the the idea of healing the world uh, more effectively in their pull marketing? What are some of the, the tips and tricks that you have for that? Well, again, I'm going to look at some companies that have done it. Ben & Jerry's, for example, mm-hmm. uh, is I, I like to say that the reason that they are the number two super premium ice cream brand in the country and maybe in the world is precisely because you can't go very far into their website or into their uh, articles about them without hitting the social agenda. You know that they're out there sponsoring solar festivals, and you, you may or may not know that they hire a lot of people who are not traditionally employable in their franchisee scoop shops, and that they contract with a company called Grayston Bakery to bake their brownies. Grayston Bakery will hire anyone who's next in line. They say, okay, you're on the queue, your number is up, it doesn't matter if you're an ex-addict, an ex-mental patient, an ex-con, um, if it's your turn, you get offered the job and you get the training resources you need to make a go of it. And therefore, what they're doing is they're taking these unemployable people and making them employable and giving them a valid resume and giving them valid experience so that they can go on to succeed. It's a brilliant model. And Ben and Jerry's, by choosing to support this company instead of some you know, less socially conscious brownie baker, is putting its money where it's... Um, where its butterfat is, and uh, (laughs) uh, making a huge difference. They don't spend all that much time bragging about what they do, but if you dig in, you see amazing things. Mm -hmm. They are now owned by Unilever, and they were the first Unilever unit to get what's called B Corp certification, and now Unilever as an entity is looking into B Corp certification. And that, let me tell you, will be a game changer, because B Corp is a legal form that allows corporations to look at other metrics besides short-term profit. Absolutely. And we're actually going to talk about that in a later segment because it is an exciting, revolutionary model. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Shell. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. And in case you've just joined us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Shell Horowitz, and he's got a brand new book out, and it's called Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, Combining Principles and Profit to Create the World We Want. Shell, I'd like to read a quote from your book and have you explain it in detail to our listeners. It's really good. It says, in the past, many companies have chosen to address the world's deepest problems through philanthropy. That's fine and good, but why not make it better? The solutions to problems like hunger, poverty, war, and catastrophic climate change can actually become profit centers. Shell, help us understand what you mean by that. Yeah, well, the D-Light example we talked about in the first segment is a perfect example. You're creating products and services that in themselves are transformational. You're not just waiting on the charity. As I said, charity is a great thing. In the book, actually, I've got a guest essay by Yannick Silver that talks about 11 different charity models that companies can use for their philanthropy. So I don't in any way discount that. But I think, you know, it's not just as it's not enough anymore just to go green. It's not enough to give money to good causes. It's much better if you can structure what you're doing so that everything you're doing all day long is making the world better. An- another wonderful example of there are people who sell vertical garden kits for apartment dwellers. So you're taking somebody in New York City or you know, Mumbai, wherever, who has no access to land, and you're giving them a space in like a three-foot square to grow their own garden inside their own apartment. That's pretty cool to me because it's addressing not only hunger, but it's also addressing community food self-sufficiency. You have companies doing marvelous things on rooftops. On my YouTube channel, you can find an interview I conducted with the manager of a farm called Sky Vegetables, located eight stories above the South Bronx. Wow. And, of course, being in the South Bronx, one of the most economically vulnerable neighborhoods in the entire country, they have done a lot with local, not just local farmers, but local vendors and distribution systems to get that food into people in that food desert neighborhood. And this is just, there are thousands of projects like this in in any industry you can think of. Um, Another great example is Interface, the flooring company. Mm -hmm. They decided many years ago that flooring needed to be reinvented. So among the many inventions and innovations that they put out was one where instead of selling you a whole floor, they sell you modular tiles. So if you put those tiles in high-traffic areas and they get worn out, 
because people are walking back and forth in them all day. You yank up those four or five tiles and replace them, and the others are fine. And you've lowered what happens to go into the landfill enormously. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And and it's one of those things that, you know, conventional flooring companies think, well, but we want them to replace the whole floor because that's where, you know, we make our money. But uh, the, the kind of customer loyalty that these flooring companies and other companies that are innovating in just this way, uh, you know, that loyalty turns into uh, word of mouth. It turns into return customers, of course. And, um, you know, that's and great press. Exactly. Great press. Those are great examples. You know, Shell, I loved the section in your book that explains why we will never hear you use the phrase global warming. And uh, I'd love for you to share with our listeners why that is and help us understand how that fits into the notion of guerrilla marketing that can Mm -hmm. heal the world. Global warming, I think, must have been a creation of the oil companies. It sounds so nice and warm and fuzzy and cozy. I use the word catastrophic climate change, the phrase, which is a much more accurate description of what we're really talking about. Uh, You know, I live in New England. It's cold in the winter here. Global warming sounds attractive. I don't want to make it sound attractive. So a lot of the guerrilla mindset is about framing things the way we want them to be perceived. This is something that many of the conservative activists figured out about 30 years ago, and they started being much more focused in their messaging, and then they started winning elections. Um, I do not support their agenda, so I come up with different framing. Well, and I think, you know, this is one of those instances where we can convince people that words really matter. And in marketing, um, it's not just about, you know, effective marketing is about so much more than just flashy commercials or, uh, you know, the, the right photos, but words really do matter. They convey um, a sense of, uh, of what we either want our consumers to believe or not so much. And you had some examples, too. We won't give away the whole book of, um, of instances in which, you know, the, the really the wrong message was sent to consumers as a result of poor wording. Good writers yeah, matter. Yeah, like a campaign against littering that actually um, But one, I, I want to talk about a great framing example. It was one that I was personally involved with. Yes. Um, in 1999, a local developer announced that the mountain next to the mountain behind my house was where he was going to put 40 McMansions. And while they interviewed a number of experts in that original article, and the experts all said variations on, oh, this is terrible, but there's nothing we can do. And frankly, <laughs> what moved me to action was not reading about the development. It was re- reading all of these responses from people who should know better, saying that they had given up all hope. That's when I got pissy enough to start a movement. And framing was a very, very key part of that. The very first press release I put out said, Mr. Burkume has vastly underestimated the love that people in the Pioneer Valley have for this mountain, and it went on from there. Uh, Our biggest challenge with that campaign, Jill, was shifting the public opinion to feel that there was something we could do. Once we had that, we won very quickly. I thought it was going to take us five years. We did it in 13 months flat. Wow. That's pretty amazing um, to, to go up against developers, you know, and, and take it down that quickly. That's, that's remarkable. 
You know, there's a section in your book called Deaths of Market Share, and you quote someone that I actually got to spend a whole day with um, back when I was in the Navy. Herb Kelleher, the founding CEO of Southwest Airlines, was the guest of my uh, my captain, my commanding officer at the command that I served at. And what a character. I really enjoyed, I'll never forget, meeting Herb Kelleher. But he has a quote that says, market share has nothing to do with profitability. And I'd like for you to talk to us about how shifting our thinking away from market share can impact our marketing for the betterment of the world. Mm -hmm. First of all, I come out this not at a scarcity mentality, but an abundance mentality. So, okay, I'm a marketing consultant specializing in socially transformative and green companies. If you go to goingbeyondsustainability.com and you look at what I can do for your business, that doesn't mean that I'm taking anything away from other green and social change marketing consultants. Okay, there's enough to go around. I could only accommodate, I don't know, 0.000, add another 10 zeros, 1% of the total market out there. Because as a service business, if I'm at capacity, what does it matter? I don't want to work 18-hour days, seven days a week. You know, I don't want to hire right. a big staff. Um, I am limited by my ability to serve my clients. And even in product-based businesses, I think you see that there is room for a lot of players because none of us can fill the whole market ourselves. And there we can do things to, uh, if I can dare quote George W. Bush, the only time you'll ever hear me do it, he had this wonderful phrase, make the pie higher. I just love that. <laughs> so I, one of the nice things about having the abundance mentality is that your so-called competitors become your allies as you join together to make that pie higher. A local example here, we had uh, in, for many, many years in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is the town I used to live in and live next to now, uh, they had a big restaurant festival every year where like 50 restaurants would take over a big downtown parking lot and they would serve small portions at 2 or $3 a hit and they would publicize it far and wide and what would happen is people would come from 50, 60 miles away from some of the urban centers like Hartford or Springfield or uh, even New Haven and Boston and they'd come up and they'd take in these cheap meals and then they'd have maybe uh, go see a concert or whatever and they'd add to the local economy but then the really important thing was that then they would come back at other times of the year. It's like, hey, remember that really good restaurant that was serving that thing in the parking lot? Let's go eat there tonight. So they made the pie higher. And Northampton, during those years, grew from about 50 restaurants in town, this is about 30,000 people, mind you, to about 100. Wow. Wow, that's a huge increase. Yeah, it doubled it. <laughs> so, so the, you know, if somebody had been concerned about, you know, just grabbing up the market share, they might have missed the opportunity to grow the market altogether. You know, for a lot of companies who are just sort of beginning this idea of becoming green, you identify three primary components of what it means to be a green company. Uh, first, changing your entire company to a green mindset. Secondly, greening your operations. And finally, offering green products and services. Now, if a product, or I mean, if a company is starting at ground zero, where should they begin in their quest to go green? And should that quest be photographed and documented to be used as marketing material later? Well, the last question is really easy. Yes. <laughs> as far as where to start, I'd say start with the low-hanging fruit. Start with the places where you're going to have the biggest return for the least hassle. 
So, for example, if you're buying a new printer, buy one that prints two-sided, set that as the default, and train your staff to use it and just to turn it off on the rare times when they need something single-sided like it's going to be a print master, not that anybody does master printing from paper anymore, but you know, just <laughs> as an example. Uh, but there, there might be some other situations where you need to print one-sided, but that should be the exception that you have to specially configure, and the default would be two-sided. Better yet, bump up the screen fonts on your computer so that people with aging eyes are not squinting and not feeling they need to print. I used to print five pages. Now I'll read 25, 30 pages on screen because I made the print big enough so it's not a strain. Very easy thing to do. Uh, you can insulate your outside wall outlets and uh, switch plates by getting not only the little foam things that the utility company will give you when you get an energy audit, but get down to the hardware store and get some baby safety outlet protectors. And if you've got an outlet that's facing the outside and you put in those baby safety outlet protectors, you take it out on a cold January night, you will feel the whoosh of cold air coming in. It's amazing how much heat you save by doing that. Think about how you approach anything from washing a dish to running your factory. Are you using resources in the most effective way? Is there a process you could skip or reinvent? Uh, actually, another interface example, one of the other things they did, they had a, a plant that was using a lot of energy for one particular part of the, the flooring making process. And they had an energy up expert come in and look at the plant, and he said, you got these long, narrow, curvy pipes. Let's yank them out and put in big, fat, wide, straight ones. They saved 92% of the energy in that process just from doing that. That's incredible. Well, and one of the things that you're hitting on here is that, um, you know, even if you're a small business, there are local uh, entities that can help you. You know, your utility. I'm sorry, company. you're breaking up, Jill. Say that again. Yeah, there are uh, local entities that can help you uh, become more green. You can use, you know, your local utility to help you with energy audits. You can use your local waste hauler to help you separate recycling and perhaps organics. Yeah. And actually, I can connect people with a waste consultant who works only on percentage of what he saves you. Uh, write to me privately on this, and I, I will hook you up. Uh, but typically, he's been able to save some of his clients up to 50%, both by getting them a better deal and also by looking at what they're throwing away that maybe they could use for some other purposes. Interestingly enough, some of the really huge corporations like General Electric and General Motors have stopped throwing away stuff they used to throw away and have now turned it into revenue streams in the 9 and 10 figures. Amazing stuff. Wow, that's incredible. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we're going to talk about this and so much more with Shell when we return. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you've all tuned in. And if you're just joining us, I'll catch you up. Our guest today is Shel Horowitz, and he's the author of a brand new book called Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. Now, uh, Shel, you know, one of the, uh, the actions that you recommend is to list five potential products that use your core capabilities to make a real difference on things like hunger, poverty, war, or catastrophic climate change. And I can imagine some small business owners out there thinking, uh, I do people's taxes, or I sell real estate, or maybe, you know, I groom dogs for a living. How am I supposed to make a difference in big issues like hunger and poverty and something like that? So I'd like for you to treat one of these small business examples as if you were consulting for that business. How okay. would you help them? I'll, I'll help a dog groomer. And this is unscripted, right. unrehearsed, um, never been heard before stuff. It's going to be a <laughs> right. brainstorm. Help that dog groomer make a connection between their core competencies and these huge issues that you talk about. Okay, number one, the dog groomer is going to have a lot of fur lying around. What can be done with that fur? Could it be made into pillows and given to a homeless shelter or sold uh, to a human service agency? Um, What do you do with the dog waste? Could it be a source of compost for a local farm? Uh, What do you do about people who can't afford to keep their dog uh, or, you know, are are looking for the the benefits of companion animals? Is there a charity component that you could put together with that so that uh, on a certain day maybe all the proceeds are are donated to some agency that matches people with dogs and provides the people with the resources? And on and on and on you go. That's wonderful. And and that's a perfect example of linking your core competencies to a higher purpose. I love it. Uh, now, your book makes the assertion that green goods and services are much easier to market. And I'm wondering, why is that true? 
Because when people are faced with the choice of doing the right thing or doing the ordinary thing and you make it easy for them, this is what I call the lazy green consumer, the people who are not dedicated to living a green lifestyle so much, but they'll do the right thing if it's easy. So they'll buy recycled toilet paper if it's right next to the regular toilet paper. They'll buy the socially conscious ice cream if it's right next to the other brand. They, you know, they will buy the organic food, maybe not out of even a concern for the earth, but out of a concern for their health because it's, it's becoming more and more obvious that chemiculture is not really a good way to farm for long-term health. Mm-hmm. And so by buying organic, they know they're not getting GMOs, they know they're not getting pesticides, they know that the soil is being nurtured rather than stripped of its nutrients, and that we, if we want to have that soil to pass down to our grandkids and their grandkids, we need to take care of it, we need to take care of the water, all of this stuff. So it's actually a very easy sell, and particularly if you couple it with some education about easy lifestyle changes that people can make, such as not running the water the full force when you're brushing your teeth or washing a dish the whole time. You can do it with, for brushing your teeth, really a couple of spoonfuls of water <laughs> at the beginning and end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we're, we're trained not to do those things. We're, we're actually trained to be very, very wasteful. We change the mindset to think instead of, um, I'm just going to squander this resource until it's gone, if we think, how can I do this with the least impact on resources? How can I do this so that the most is preserved for the future? And it's really not that hard to find the solutions. And there's such an outflowing of creativity, Jill. The, the number of new technologies and new products and new approaches is just phenomenal. Uh, I, I'm particularly fond of one called biomimicry. I don't know if you remember the section in the book called Mother Nature Chief Engineer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but to me, basically, this is looking at the work of Janine Benyus and other people and looking at, well, whatever technical engineering challenge we face... Nature figured it out millennia ago. <laughs> so as an example, there is nobody who can teach you more about bridge building than a spider. According to Benyus, if a spider was the size of a person, their web would actually be strong enough to stop a moving jet plane. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And I know that there's some biomimicry going on with um, architecture, looking at even the way that ants uh, and what they do underground and the way that they build, um, even the way bees build their hive. There are some architects that are starting to use some biomimicry. Uh, uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and actually Benyus talks about one example of, I think it is an anthill in Indian monsoon country that is able to survive the extreme drought that they have most of the year, as well as the extreme flooding, that they have, just because it's built kind of almost like a Frank Lloyd Wright building. It's kind of like the Guggenheim. It's all curves and swales and uh, designed to withstand the impact of both the flood and the drought. Mm-hmm. It's an exciting new science, I think, uh, and it's going across several different disciplines. Now, your book also recommends that businesses find at least one talking point for their products or services that relates to localism. Why is that important, Shell, and how can that benefit a company? Because localism is another big trend. You will see more and more people looking to support their local farmers, their local craftspeople, their local architects. There's a movement away from the big chain sameness that we've been facing for so long. People want individuation. They want artisanship. Uh, there's uh, What's happened, just as an example, in the cheese industry in the last 10 or 15 years in the United States is phenomenal. We now have the same kinds of gourmet artisan cheeses that Europe has been enjoying for centuries instead of that processed yellow brick. Mm -hmm. Um, 
in beer, in chocolate, in, in any kind of food industry you can think of, this is important. I think you'll start to see it filtering down into clothing. I, I'm predicting that 10 years from now there will be a big movement around local fiber clothing. Hmm. That's really And whether that's linen made out of local flax grown or whether it's, it's wool made out of local sheep, I, I think that's watch, – watch that trend. That's my prediction. That's interesting. We will. Now, you talk about greenwashing in the book. That's a term we've heard a lot about. What exactly is that, and how can companies avoid greenwashing? Greenwashing is pretending you're green when you're not. A classic example is the nuclear power industry, which is an extremely dangerous and stupid technology. I wrote my first book on this back. It was published in 1980, and I've seen nothing to change my mind. I updated the book after Fukushima, actually, and it's all still true. And yet they pretend to be green because the actual act of running the uranium through the reactor does not have a big carbon impact. However, when you count the mining, the milling, the storage, the transportation, there's plenty of carbon impact. And then when you count the waste and the fact that it's got to be isolated from the environment for a quarter of a million years, we have no idea how to do that. Okay, and then, of course, the potential for catastrophic accident. Uh, Talk to people in the Ukraine where they had to evacuate after Chernobyl, and here it is 30 years later and they still can't go back. Talk to them about the environmental impact of, of nuclear power. So, well, you know, there are I, I wanna, uh, many, many examples pivot. outside nuclear. Uh, certainly um, the pesticide industry, Monsanto in particular with its Roundup, which is based in glyphosate, uh, there are some very, very dangerous environmental problems with that that get glossed over. So the defense against it is to tell the truth and do things right from the start. Well, I want you to give us an example that's a bit more consumer-facing because consumers buy energy through their utilities. They don't buy it directly from, you know, being marketed to by the nuclear power industry. And so I'd like for you to give us an example of a, of a B2C company scenario where they can avoid greenwashing. Okay. Give me a moment to think. Well, you know, Nike was heavily criticized um, a lot of years ago for sweatshop practices. And Nike's defense was to change and stop doing that. So there's a, a really good example. Hershey right now is, has just pledged to switch to fair trade cocoa and therefore to stop contributing to slavery in the Ivory Coast and other places where cocoa is grown. So you see consu- companies beginning to move, B2C companies, and that's business to consumer for those who don't know the acronym. Uh, you, you begin to see a lot of movement on this as people realize that it's really good for business to do these things. Excellent. Now, what are your thoughts on the impact of third-party certifications? There's kind of a, you know, a mixed um, amount of, of guidance on this. Some people think that they really matter. Other people will say consumers don't even know what they mean. What do you think, Shell? Well, I think they do matter, and they matter more when companies educate people about what they mean. Uh, there are so <laughs> many certifications out there, and some of them don't mean anything, especially the ones that are done by the company who's being certified. I don't put a lot of strength in those. But just as an example, the fair trade certification actually means something. The organic certification actually means something. The word natural means nothing. Anybody can call their product natural. Mm-hmm. But uh, organic, if you're using the label organic, it means that a third party verified that you have grown your ingredients organically. And organic means without chemicals and pesticides and without GMOs. 
Mm-hmm. So those are certifications that matter. There are hundreds of certifications out there. I personally have gotten certified. For example, I was the very first business to get Green America certification at the gold level. And since I was a sole proprietor and they were designed for big companies, I, we kind of had to invent a process together about mm-hmm. how I would qualify. <laughs> right. Well, and that's one of the things that we do on Go Green Radio. We try to explain some of the certifications. We've had a variety of certifying or organizations on so that people know the difference, say, for instance, between paper that is FSC certified, which is uh, a certification that was uh, developed with several third-party non-industry organizations. Yeah, Forest Stewardship and, Council. And, and SFI certification, which was a paper industry-created uh, certification. Yeah, and, and so, even within FSC, there are many levels, so you want to make sure you're getting the FSC certification at a level that matters. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that, that we try to educate our listeners on, and so, you know, I, I agree with you, Shell. I think they absolutely do matter. We've got to take a quick commercial break, believe it or not, but we're going to be back with more, and when we come back, Shell is going to talk to our listeners about a special gift that he has for all of you, so don't go away. We'll be right more back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our guest today, Shell Horowitz, the author of a brand new book called Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, has a gift for all of our listeners. Shell, tell us about that. Yeah, actually, I've got a couple of gifts. 
Um, one, if you go to transformpreneur.com, and that's the word transform and then the second half of entrepreneur, you can take a, your choice of green or social change assessments, or both, and if you go through that process, then you actually earn 15 minutes on the phone with me to talk about your own business situation. Wow. And then a, a somewhat lesser value, if you go to goingbeyondsustainability.com and click on the book cover for Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. And Guerrilla, by the way, is spelled G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. My co-author came up with a great brand, but it's hard to spell. And... Uh, <laughs> If you click on that book cover, you can actually get a PDF that has a few excerpts from the book, as well as, of course, some material telling you why you want to own this book. <laughs> well, fantastic. That is a great gift, both of them. So thank you, Shell. Thank you uh, for doing that for our listeners. We really appreciate it. Uh, and I know, imagine I- that you'll put all these links on the show page. Of course, you know, and, and that on Twitter as well. Um, I'd really love for you to talk about a, a couple of companies that you regard as leaders in both guerrilla marketing and healing the world. Give us some examples that we can aspire to. Okay. Dean's Beans is a wonderful coffee company in Orange, Massachusetts. They started in 1993, and every single bean that they've roasted, both cocoa and uh, coffee, has been fair trade or better, and organic, okay? So when companies like Starbucks or Green Mountain say, oh, we can only do a small percentage of our coffee as organic and fair trade, uh, Dean Saikon has been proving them wrong forever. Dean is a brilliant marketer who has wonderful radio commercials. Uh, The funny thing is he hates marketing. If you talk to him, he is one of those people that has that negative stereotype about marketers and doesn't realize that he's a marketer and a brilliant one. (laughs) But uh, the other nice thing about that company is that a big percentage of their profits go right back into the coffee villages, into village-led development projects that he funds. Whether it's digging a well or running trainings on domestic violence, it's what the village feels is their most pressing need. And the coffee cooperative that you know they're doing this. So he has from the get go. He's a recovering lawyer, and and he's done this company specifically as a way of creating transformational change in the developing world, as well as bringing very good coffee to the market. So that's one. Uh, we talked a little bit about Grayston Bakery earlier and Delight. Those are other examples I like. Uh, there are so many really interesting companies working in the green energy space with really cool stuff. Like when we think of wind turbines, we all think of those giant things out on the ocean with rotors that are what looks like a half a mile long. But there are some very interesting companies doing, for example, vertical access uh, turbines on a very small scale, which basically, if you can think of an oil drum cut into the shape of a daisy, and the wind pushes it around, and it's it's on a rod that's sticking up, as opposed to the blade sticking up on a rod that's sticking out. Mm-hmm. And they are very, very useful in places where traditional wind power either generates too much wind or too little, because they're effective at very, very low and very, very high speeds. Mm-hmm. And they're also locally used so that typically if you're in a situation like this, the factory roof that has these things on it is going to be the factory that's going to use that power. Mm-hmm. You have thing, people doing things like paint that has solar built into it so that your, your roof or your wall can actually become a source of energy. Just amazing the creativity that's going on there. There are, again, just hundreds of examples in the book and thousands of examples out there in the world. 
Well, and I did love it, you know, in reading the book, just thinking about, you know, not just the profit opportunity, but the innovation that's happening. I mean, some of these difficult problems to solve that you mentioned in the book, hunger, war, poverty, catastrophic climate change, they create opportunities to be innovative that, you know, if everything were hunky-dory, we might not feel the need to be so innovative and creative, and it's it's kind of an exciting time of opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, as we look at the question of what one company's waste can be, how it can be an input for another company, mm-hmm. I want to read from the book a little quote from Muhammad Ali of all people. <laughs> sure. Impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible mm-hmm. is not a fact. It's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. I love it. Amen. You get an amen from me. (laughs) You know, especially in this year of such a divisive presidential primary, we hear, you know, lots of different opinions about what the government should be doing and, you know, what uh, their role is in these big issues like hunger and war and catastrophic climate change. And a lot of people look to the government to rectify these big issues. Um, But you contend that the private sector may be able to accomplish some things better than the government. And I'd love to hear your thinking on that, Shell. Yeah. I mean, mind you, I am not one of those people who says government is all bad, but I, I... I I think, actually, interestingly enough, the Nixon administration created a number of the best environmental laws we have. Mm -hmm. And, of course, earlier Johnson and uh, Kennedy created the civil rights laws that we have. So I definitely see a role for federal government, but I also see that the current federal government is so divided that it can't really get anything done and uh, can't agree on, on even the agenda. So if we wait around for government, we're going to be waiting too long. We're going to be waiting long enough that we're going to be those of us who live in coastal cities will probably be underwater. So the private sector has an incentive that government doesn't have, and that's the profit motive. If we can build thriving businesses by doing the right thing, by making these transformational products and services and marketing them effectively, then it's going to happen out of enlightened self-interest. And I think for the most part, we cited Nike earlier. Nike is the rare example of a place where guilt and shame actually worked. But mm-hmm. typically, when you try to motivate people to change through guilt and shame, they end up building defensive castles around themselves and uh, trying to, to block out the criticism and not really acknowledging responsibility. So rather than that, if you can say, well, I, hey, you know, here's two ways to do this thing. One of them, you can save $100 million a year and, by the way, slash your fuel costs by 80%. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or you can do it the same old way you've always done and let your competitor get that competitive advantage of saving the $100 million by going green. It's a no-brainer. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that's so exciting about your book. It really illuminates this fact that, you know, especially given, you know, the the more expensive means of extraction of fossil fuels and, you know, higher rates of, you know, energy prices and things like this, that really those companies that are looking to capture infinite sources of energy versus finite sources of energy and things like that are going to become more profitable, not just because uh, they have to count on consumers singing Kumbaya and being green in order to purchase (laughs) them, but because it actually will 
improve their profitability stance. You know, maybe maybe yeah. it'll increase their market share, but it will certainly increase their profitability, which is what we're in business for. And right. that business the triple bottom line bad. turns out to be very good for the single bottom line. And I, I do have considerably more information about this stuff in the book and on the websites goingbeyondsustainability.com and transformpreneur.com. Well, we have about 30 seconds left, and in that time, I'd love for you to leave us with one final thought. The thought is your mindset. If you believe that the thing is possible, it becomes possible. If you believe the thing becomes, is impossible, you prove the truth of that. So we can do this. People who say we can't are simply wearing blinders. We can change the world, and we can do it in ways that make sense and make money. I love it. Thank you so much, Shell. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for putting out this great new book, Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. Uh, if you want more of what you've just heard, well, you know what? We'll be here same time, same place next week with Morco Green Radio. So until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.